History Lecture 77, Rabbi Blywhite. There is a very central, important legend. Uh, it's probably based on reality. I mean, it's almost, almost certainly based certainly based on some familiar figures that were real historical figures. The reason the term legend is used to describe it is that there, there's, there's no historical evidence to back it up, but okay, since when has that bothered us? Uh, it certainly conveys an idea. The major idea is it's told as a way of indicating the demise of Bavel as the world's Torah center and the spread of Torah. The end game is the spread of Torah throughout the diaspora to a new phase in history and arguably this is what closes the, the period we've been calling the Gaonim and begins the, loosely begins the period we're calling the Rishonim where the Gaonates centered in Bavel no longer is going to exist in the same way. It's going to decline and the Torah is going to be found in lots of different places, evolving and shifting and migrating from place to place like so many wandering Jews. And that's, that's what this story tells us. And it's, it's called the legend of the four captives. Uh, its primary source is in the Sefer Kabbalah, which we've been referring to as one of our major sources for this whole period, the Rabbit Sefer Kabbalah. To the best, what we can assess as best we can, it takes place, some say maybe 960, maybe later in 990, around that period, sometime in the late 10th century. And it reflects another reality, which is Bovell increasingly has money problems. And their financial crisis causes these four gedolim, Rashi Yeshiva, all of them, to go into um, to go on a fundraising mission in the diaspora to collect money. They're from Surah, and they're going they're going fundraising abroad. There's another version of the story that says that they first they don't they don't sail from the Middle East, they don't sail from Babel, but rather from Italy, which ruins the whole kick of the story, which is that they left from Babel to go to the diaspora, and that's how the Torah spreads, uh, decentralizes. Okay, so that's another version of the story. Um, here's the gist. Here's the, main, here the, here's the main elements of the story that you should know. The, um, they're, on, they're on a boat, and pirates capture the boat. And pirates were a reality. They are a reality still in the world today. Uh, anybody traveling near Somalia certainly knows that. But pirates have always been a uh, bane for sailors. And they capture the boat. And on the boat are four great figures. You should know the names. At least some of the names are going to be familiar. One is Rav Chushiel ben Rav Elchanan. And his name may be less familiar. He's one of the Gaonim. Uh, but his son is a name uh, that you should know, I imagine you do know. If you don't know his name, perhaps I could show you his picture. Rav Kushiel's son, you know, looks like, this is his exact likeness and image, he looks just like this. This is from, this is from a profile. His name is, I'm holding up a Gemara and showing, Rabbeinu Hananel. He's the white? He's the, he's the narrow margin of our Gemara, and this is a perfect, uh, see a picture of Rabbeinu Hanano? Ben Rabbeinu Hushiel, one of the four captives um, who set sail on this, on this ill-fated boat. Uh, the second is, uh, is Rabbeinu Moshe Hadayan, together with his wife and his son, Rav Chanoch. The third is Rav Shmarya, Ben Rav Elchanan. And the fourth, we're not quite sure. Sometimes, some say he doesn't have a name. He's a Talmud Chacham, but we don't know who it is. Others name him as Rav Nosson Abavli. And they're captured. And in part of the famous part of the story, Rav Moshe's wife asks him if, she's not sure, if I would jump overboard, honey, uh, she asks, Will I merit Tchias Amesin? Is it a sin or a mitzvah for me to jump overboard? Why does she want to jump overboard? Maybe she knows what's going to happen. Yeah, pirates are not good for lots of reasons. But, uh, m among them is it's not good to be a lady when the pirates capture the city. The, the they, have, they have that story in the Gemara too. They, they do about the 400 youth. Right. Should we jump overboard and die? Al-Kiddush Hashem. He, he quotes the Gemara in Gitin. 
Anun Zayin Amudbeis, very famous Gemara, she understands that that's an affirmative and she jumps overboard and dies al Kedish Hashem. Um, and the pirates realize that they've hit upon a treasure that they didn't anticipate. These rabbis may not be carrying much in terms of liquid assets, but they themselves are valuable. They can auction them off around the Mediterranean area where there are a lot of well-to-do Jewish communities and be able to get for each of them a pretty hefty ransom. And that's what they decide to do. They start in Alexandria, and the Jews indeed start bidding. The pirates realize they've got quite a, quite a, quite a business going, and they, they, they see an opportunity. These communities, for their part, if you can picture them this time, according to the story, and it makes sense that this is the reality, they're desperate for rabbis. They'd be delighted to ransom the rabbis with the assumption that the rabbis would then stay and serve and be part and upgrade the community and give them the spiritual uh, inspiration that they, that they crave. And so they, they, they lack. They, they, I mean, they, they start making bids. Now, from the perspective of the rabbis themselves, it's quite a quandary that they find themselves in having to choose. What should, how should they you know, look at their options? They look on the one side, they see um, the pirates and the future, the, the pirates bode with them. And then they look on the other side and they see the Balabatim. And it's the pirates, or the Balabatim, and the pirates, and the Balabatim. And it's a hard choice. But ultimately the Balabatim went out. And um, I, I guess I don't deliver it as well. I know, I, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine does a better job with that particular line. Um, the idea was, you know, like in a, in, a, in, a, in a choice between the Balabatim and the pirates, a lot of rabbis would pause. Uh, yeah, anybody serving a board of directors in a synagogue knows exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, the... Um, um, my question, like, uh, I work, everyone's in synagogue, is a board of Oh no! <laughs> okay. Yeah, we literally come together like once a year. We vote on things. Okay. Yeah. So um, Rav Shmaryahu is sold in Alexandria, and he becomes Rosh Hashiva in Fostat. Fostat, we'll hear about, is old Cairo. Al Fayun is newer Cairo, South Cairo. But Fostat was old Cairo, and this is the beginning of a Jewish community in Egypt. Anybody bothered by this? Yeah, not allowed to. Right. Okay. Well, Rav Shmaryahu seems to be faultless because he's ransomed. He's auctioned off there. It's not his fault he's there. But, um, but others, certainly it's, it's an issue. And we'll, we'll talk about this in more depth when we talk about the Rambam. It's usher to live in Egypt, right? It's usher to live in Egypt. Three lavish, three negative Torah precepts that it's permitted to live and settle in Egypt. Correct. Correct. But they're there and we're going to find Jews there all the way until the modern era. Today, uh, the Jewish community in Cairo mostly, is, uh, around Egypt, it's most of the Jews have left. There are some older Jews left in Cairo. Uh, I think I read earlier this year, the leader of the community was a woman, an old woman, and most of the people in the community are, are, are uh, pension, pension, pensioners. Um, and that's the, nature, that's the nature of the community. What's that? Pension. They, they're on pension, meaning they're old age. They're, they're, they're in their old age. The community is dying out. And most of the most of the Egyptian Jewish community has left, uh, which perhaps some would take as a sign of it. Uh, you know, the of the early Messianic uh, times, that the Egypt is finally emptying out of its Jews. Um, Rav Hushiel is sold in Cairoan, which is a major city in Tunis, today Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia, uh, Cairoan is, is considered the fourth holiest city to, the, to many Muslims. Uh, today, Tunisia is the, of the various Arab countries that experience what they call the Arab, Arab Spring, the Arab Uprising a couple years ago. Uh, Tunisia is one of the only ones, if not the best example of a, of a revolution that seems to be relatively stabilized. Almost all the other Arab countries did not so go so well. There is this ancient community that dates back to Cairo, in which today maybe doesn't register. Doesn't has anybody ever heard of the, the city before? Right, it's not a well-known place. But Rav Hushiel and his son Rav Hananel certainly we're going to hear about Cairo in this period as being a central Torah, Torah community. Where's Cairo? It's in Tunisia, on the north. It's um, the north of. Take out a map, right? The north of Africa. Uh, which is referred to in um, some, by many people as the Maghreb, 
Like, for example, you ever heard of the Mugrabi Quarter above the Western Wall in the Old City from Arabs from the Maghreb? Maghreb is one of the terms to describe the various countries in North Africa. Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, going all the way across, those are the North African countries. And they'll be, when I am constantly referring to Jewish communities in the Mediterranean Basin, so that includes the North African Jewish Front. And, and so now we're finding increasingly Alexandria of Egypt, Cairo in Tunisia, that uh, there are Jews and there's even Tyra to be learned in, su in such places. Yeah. In Mali, to Timbuktu is in Mali today. I mean, Jews seem to be everywhere. Far be it for me to say no to any such question, but I I'm unfamiliar if they are. It's one of the only countries that has no Jews. Mali literally has, you know that for sure. And I, I defy, um, once you tell that statistic to Israelis, if you know the Israeli spirit, certainly some Israelis will go backpacking there. Probably. Probably. Yeah, probably expecting to find the Mistama. Mistama. Right. But not, not, I mean, I've never heard of the Mali and Jewish in the same sentence. Not, not a place where you'd expect to find the Chabad. Um, Rav Moshe, the third of the rabbis, and his son Hanoch, his, now his uh, motherless son Hanoch, are taken to... Cordova, Cordova, which some which linguists say link the term Cordova. Eli, I've lost you already. Uh, link the term Cordova with the Hebrew root Kiryat Tova, Kiryat village, good village, Kiryat Tova, Cordova, um, and they're sold there. Um, and in Cordova, they don't have a shas, they don't have a Talmud. Apparently, Rav Nitronai Hagaon's Talmud that he wrote from memory no long, must have been lost. They have a Mishnah. Uh, and Rav Moshe and Hanoch come and move in, and they're very humble, and even though the Jews um, auction them, buy them, or, or pay, the, pay the ransom money, um, they don't recognize the greatness of Rav Moshe just yet until they're learning in the base Medrash and they get stumped with a shaila. And nobody has the answer, and they turn to Rav Moshe, and in his modesty, he's able to answer. Of course, he's able to answer. He's able to completely, uh, um, you know, clean up with, with with his expertise on the subject. And they realize uh, this is the man. And um, the local great figure who I'm going to describe next, his name is Rav Chazda Ibn Shaprut, one of the prominent Jews of early Spain, arranges to have Rav Moshe installed as the official Rav of Cordova. And with Rav Moshe there, Spain now gets on the map and becomes a major center of Torah. The, uh, there are all kinds of questions about the fourth rabbi. Some say he was, he was unnamed and he was sold in Sicily and Italy. We know that Italy, we're going to hear, Italy is definitely a place with a long-standing Jewish community. Uh, and, and even Talmud Chachamim. Uh, the tradition of Ashkenaz dates back through Italy in this period of time, in the late Ga'onim, early Rishonim. Um, some say it's this figure of Rav Nasan Abavli, who's not to, not to be confused with the late Tana. That's a different Rav Nasan Abavli, Abos Rav Nasan. This Rav Nasan Abavli um, builds a Torah center in Provence, in south of France, in the city of Norbonne. So, um, so what the, the story that some of you coming in at the tail end, what this signifies is from this point on in history, we find Bovel receding into the background. We're not going to hear as much as Bovel as the center as it has been for almost 800 years. Uh, and the world becomes now a Torah background and intercontinental. Um, students, therefore, disperse and go to wherever Torah can be found, which is not always in the same place. And... Really, by the 11th century, Bovel is secondary, if not tertiary. It's, it becomes Tofel uh, in the Torah world. We're not quite there yet, but I'm setting the stage. Let me introduce a few key figures from this late, late Gaonic period. Um, I mentioned Chazda Ibn Shaprut. His dates are given from 915 to 970. Increasingly, I'm going to be giving you the dates of the figures we're talking about as a way of trying to give you uh, some kind of concrete hold on where we're holding in history. So Rav Chazdai, and I'm going to be talking a lot about individuals, and when I do that, it's with the idea, in their stories, you can see a lot of Jewish history reflected. Um, technically, he's not considered the vizier, which is like the prime minister, but de facto, he, is, he arises in power, which is extraordinary, a Jew in power in a non-Jewish place, in a Muslim place, and 
We would see him as effectively the foreign minister in Cordova. One of the early prominent Jews in the entire what's called the Andalusian culture, the Iberian Peninsula, that whole area we call Spain today, uh, which was a dominant area in the world back then, and he is a major political powerhouse. He's also a Talmud Chacham, Chazda Ibn Shaprut. He was a poet, he was a, a physician. He actually discovered a remedy they, that they praised and talked about, and often in the non-Jewish world, it was called Al-Faruq, and apparently it was a medicine that was used until modern times, and they, they credit um, Chazdai with the discovery. Um, I don't have a chart for this one, but I'm encouraging you to keep track now of the, of the various figures that we're, we meet. They're, even though Torah is being spread around the world, because the world is an increasingly mobile place, we're going to see a lot of them are interconnected. So Rav Chazda Ibn Shaprut <coughs> was a patron, meaning he supported two important figures from this period, Dunash and Menachem. <coughs> I mentioned them recently. Dunash and Menachem. <coughs> I'm going to tell you about them next. Um, he's also, as we said, he, he was the one who installed Rav Moshe as the Rav in Cordova. Um, he's our man in a fix. Since he's so powerful, Jews from around the world turn to him for help, and he's there for them. Uh, so we have all kinds of great stories about Rav Chazdai helping out the Jews. There were letters discovered in the Cairo Geniza, which we've mentioned before. The Cairo Geniza was discovered in the end of the 19th century in an attic of an old shul in Cairo, in Fostat, um, which contained all kinds of great holy texts and letters and a historical treasure trove. And among the letters there were people writing to Rav Chazdai asking for help an individual level, whole communities who are desperate, and he often was situated in a way that he could help them. Uh, there's one letter, for example, <clears throat> that he wrote with his handwriting, they found such a letter, that he wrote to the Queen of Byzantium, Queen Helena, asking for clemency for her Jewish subjects. No, 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 this is, this, is a, this is a much later. We talked about a few Queen Helenas. This is an obscure one in history, but you know, at the time she was a powerful figure and, and Rav Chazdai asked for her help. Uh, we also have a letter where he corresponds with Yosef, the king of the Khazars. The Khazars, you remember, who converted. They converted now that they're Jews, but they, they, they still are Khazars too, and there's still a kingdom, the Khazar kingdom, uh, and there's all discussion about the conversion of his ancestors and, and its legitimacy and their full-fledged Jews at this stage. So there's a whole kind, a whole world comes to life when you oh, when you see some of this. Khazar is in the Kuzari. The review de Halevi writes the Kuzari based on this historical reality of this nation that converted to Judaism, and this is an independent source that talks that where you have the king Yosef who corresponds with Reb Chazda. We did. I don't think that's so question. I think it's mostly accepted that there was such a kingdom. The debate is... How, no, well, no, they disappeared. We don't know about them anymore. They disappeared uh, shortly after this. We don't find it a distinct kingdom of Khazars anymore. They probably reasonably integrated and just became normal Jews and became part of Klai Yisrael. Um, what was unclear was exactly how, what the... Um, what, what was, how large a uh, movement was this? Was it the entire nation that converted? That would be really amazing and interesting if it was. Or alternately, was it just the king and some of his upper aristocracy? That much was debated. Uh, I, read, I read a book on, on the king, and um, it was pretty fascinating. And yes. Uh, the idea that where, where was it located? It's uh, up in the area of the Crimea, Georgia, former Soviet Union. Um, so I mentioned them. Let me introduce you to Dunash and Menachem. Dunash's full name is Dunash Halevi Ben Labrat. His dates are given between 920 and 990, so he's a little bit younger than Rav Chazdai. <coughs> he was born in Fez, Morocco. Morocco being on the west side of North Africa. He studied under Rav Sadi Gaon in Bavel. So I don't know if you're getting this picture, but the sense that there's an interconnectedness, these great figures we've been learning about are now kind of overlapping. Um, and eventually he'd move to Cordova. He would move to Egypt. I think that Barak might find that just ever so slightly distracting. Um, <clears throat> he moves to Cordova, and his great claim to fame was he was one of the early authoritative Hebrew, Hebrew uh, grammarians, an expert on this emerging field. We talked about it a little bit that's now 
looking at the Lashon HaKodesh, the Hebrew language, as itself a study. Something that we don't have any elaborate Talmudic. I mean, there, there are, certainly the Talmud is Midayik, a lot of, let's say, the Lashon of the Psukim and so on. We have a lot of discussion, but as a formal level of inquiry, uh, this now emerges. Um, he is, he breaks into a central machlokis with his Chavrusa Menachem ben Saruk, who lived, uh, he was born the same year, 920, died in 970, lived in Tortosa and then Cordova, and their major central argument, which, can you imagine, there was an argument about Hebrew grammar, and to some degree it tore the Jewish world apart. Seriously, people got, were that concerned with it. Uh, in a great way, meaning it was important that we understand this. There's certain nafkaminas and halacha and so on. Um, this is, I, I, I'm simplifying a little bit, but the basic argument was, and I mentioned this yesterday, how influenced are Jews in these days, in the 10th century, how influenced are they by the dominant Arab culture and language? And the answer is apparently very much. Hold the thought. Let me just illustrate then you'll, then you'll, then you'll, then you'll, you'll convey. Dunash I mentioned this just the other day in, in, in Shir, but I'm going to repeat it. Dunash is the author of some very famous piyutim. One of them, he uses the typical Arabic style of acrostic, insert, inserting his name Dunash in each of the standard in each of the stanza, stanzas. And this one, you all know very well, arguably probably by heart. What did he write? I don't. We sing it on Shabbos lunch. Jeroyi Krab. Okay, Duroyikra, and if you look at the beginning of the of each stanza, it spells his name Dunash. Um, so in Duroyikra is an example of exactly what Menachem is criticizing. It begins Ne'im Shimchem Velo Yushbat, which are Arabic uh, influence stylings. It's not classic Hebrew. It's more Arabic than Hebrew, and it's a rhyming scheme that's Arabic. And um, the Hebrew should read Noim, not Ni'im. And Menachem said, you're clouding, you're muddying the waters. You're taking the pure Hebrew language and you're mixing in uh, Arabic. He's not alone. The Kuzari, himself, the author of the Kuzari reviewed, a lady was, was uh, voiced a similar idea at one point. It's a piece that I just got to when I learned the Kuzari. And I said, ooh, this gets in my notes. So I got it in just, just in time. He laments the assimilated nature of the Jewish community and how beholden they are to the Arab culture and the derivative speech that, that comes in. Uh, and Dunash defended it. Dunash has his own problems. I'll say that in a moment. Dunash also wrote a very famous uh, poem called Devai Haser Vegam Charon, which we say in Sheva Brachos, during the Zimun of Sheva Brachos. Next time you're in Sheva Brachos, pay attention. You'll find Dunash there. Um, <clears throat> his criticism of Menachem, Menachem had a machberet, his notebook, which contained his major principles of, of grammar. And Dunash felt that Menachem was at odds with Chazal. So that, that was their argument, and it was one of these central arguments that people took sides, and it actually lasts a few generations. It'll, only, it'll, it'll take until the um, mid-Rishonim, until Rabbeinu Tam and Rav Yosef Kimchi uh, each come down, and they each see both sides as having merits, and they defend both sides. They say, okay, finally we have re resolution after centuries of machlokis. Uh, Rav Yosef Kimchi was the Redak's father. Um, Rashi, for his part, pay attention as you go through Rashi. Rashi often quotes them both. You'll see, now you'll notice this, maybe you didn't notice it, but Rashi, Odunash says like this, Menachem says something else. Right? He'll often, he'll often refer to them, so they're quite authoritative. Um, what's that? It does have that feeling, I agree with you. What we do find is they both have a big impact, and they impact the way the Lashon uh, Kodish, the Hebrew language, uh, has developed in, in, until, including until today. Yeah, what you were going to say first, yeah? Uh, so my question is just on, on Lashon HaKodesh, like, did people actually write at this time still in Hebrew? Or just... No, people were not, I mean, they were writing in Hebrew. I mean, I, I they, did, they were learning their classic sources, the right. Chumash, the Mishnah in Hebrew. Right, but the, the Talmud, they had to learn, they had to learn in Aramaic, and that's why they now are, are newly helped by the new dictionary called the Aruch. That we, that we right. saw yesterday. Well, they the were point? speaking Arabic. What's the point, though, of, uh, of um, grammar if they're not writing it, right? Ah, you're saying you're not innovating in the language, so why do you need to know it? 
try to understand it, to be medayik, to have a mastery of understanding. Yeah, that's fair. But I, I, it's a, I appreciate your question. It's not, it's not a language that they're using per se. Because I know Rambam using the using all of the thing with Mishnah Torah in proper Hebrew. He did the Rambam or Mishnah Torah. The Ramban writes. So certainly the high level poskim and gedolim are writing not all of their works, but many of their books works in Lashon Hakodesh. For them, certainly it's relevant. Aaron. Kuzari was in Arabic. I know. Oh, good call. Right. Right. He's writing to his, his generation. So you could write it in Hebrew and have three people read your book or write it in Arabic and have a thousand read it. But doesn't mean he doesn't lament the influence of Arabic into pure Lashon Kodesh. That was a separate point. Right? And it was, he didn't. He, he resisted the you know the Arabic influence when he was actually learning and so on. So when, when it came to writing his book, he decided to reach a, a wider audience. It would, it would be better to read it in national Kodesh, but if you can't read it, in right, right. Oh, well, listen now. What we're doing when I'm learning the Kuzari is the same trick we did. I did when I learned the the Mornavulchim was one of us is reading it in Hebrew and the other one in English, and we're comparing, contrasting because neither is authentic. They're both translations from the original Arabic. So we figured through the two different translations, we could approximate, we could better approximate the original. Yeah, it's true. Um, arguably, among the last prominent uh, Gaonim, our father and son, we've, we've heard of one of them, we've actually, I've mentioned both of them actually. The father is named of Shrira Gaon. His dates are 906 to, 10, to, to 1006, lived a nice long life. Um, he was the Gaon of Pumbedisa, became that in 968. Uh, he served there for 30 years, and it was there that he wrote his famous Igeris, his, his, um, his book on Jewish history that we've been citing widely as a source for this whole period, because otherwise, together with this and the Sefer Kabbalah, how are we supposed to know all these things? Um, so he's a major source for this. Um, he didn't just write this. He wrote a number of other books and clearly was a gadol. He has, for example, we know that there was a perush on Chumash. Unfortunately, this and most of his books were lost. And it's not the only time we find gadolim who write books who had a major influence in their time, but uh, we don't have them. In the case of his perush on Chumash, it's often, it's often cited by the Radak. Have you learned not Navi here? Have you, have you ever had a class in Nach, in the... In, in the uh, Right, post-Torah books of the Bible. So um, the major commentaries include Rashi and, and the Mitsudos and the Radak, among many others. Uh, we'll talk about the Radak, but the Radak, one of the reasons for his um, primacy is that he brings a lot of other older books that we no longer have, so he's the source for them. So included in that is what Shriraga owns, Perish on the Chumash. So Shriraga own has a famous son who's named Rav Rav Haigaon, uh, who lives between 939 and 1038. Also long life. Uh, remember not to confuse Rav Haigaon with Rav Achaigaon from a couple of centuries earlier. Um, and he too serves in Pumbedisa. There's one terrible story. I mean, unless you think that these people had, an e had it easy, uh, life was hard for them as it's been produced throughout, throughout this history. Um, he and his father at one point are both Roshira and Rafai are imprisoned by enemies. All their, all their property is taken away by the local caliph in 997. Uh, eventually they're set free next year and the father has aged considerably and he appoints, uh, he's also near the end of his life, he appoints his son to be his successor. Son's not a young man either at that stage. Uh, Rafai will write extensively in all subjects, especially in halacha, uh, we, he writes a commentary on the Mishnah. He writes a dictionary. I mentioned the dictionary because he uh, he makes use. He says it's Rav Haigon who tells us that um, there was a, there, even the late the, even the late Amora Rav Ashi had his own Hebrew book on grammar, and he cites it as an authority as a source for his own book on grammar, his own dictionary. Um, the Jews are dispersed. This is the last time that the Jews now increasingly spread out around the world come and gather around, kind of rally around one central figure. Uh, they come back to Bavel. Uh, they wanted to learn with Rav Haigaon. Among the students who come from their various diaspora communities, Rabbeinu Hananel comes back from Cairo and comes to Bavel. 
uh, Rav Nisim Gaon, Rav Shmuel Hanagid, uh, and a very young Rav Shlomo Ibn Gaviro, um, who we're going we're gonna to meet all these figures, legendary figures. Um, notice now we find in their names even Shlomo Ibn Gaviro, Ibn Arabic for Ben, the son of Gaviro, which is really Gavriel. So we hear, we hear the Arabic influence uh, in their culture. So we're talking about the fall of the Gaonim and the rise of the Rishonim in the West, especially the West being, again, all around North Africa and South Europe. The, the, the rabbi, I don't know what generation, uh, the Ibn Ezra? Ibn Ezra also is an example. Sure. Son of Ezra. Ibn, yeah. Uh, we have many, many examples of that. We'll get to him. We'll get to him. Uh, the Ibn Ezra is one of the earlier uh, important Rishonim, yeah. What do you mean by the rise of the fall of the Gaonim and the rise of... Well, that was yesterday we talked about that. We're going to see... That when we talk about Gaonim, what you should picture in your mind is Bavel. Surum from and Bavel. When I keep talking about this gradual decline in Bavel, that means that's less significant, less central. Uh, for example, in the Gaonic period, people around the world were dependent. If you had a big shayla in Halacha, nobody else had to pack a pask in it. You sent your shayla to Surum Pumbadisa and you got a psak. Now you don't need that. Now you can go to Cordova and go to Rav Moshe Adar, Ad, Adayan. You can go to uh, Cairoan and go to Rav Chushiel and then later Rav, Rav Hanana. That's what I mean. There's a rise in the West and, and the sun sets in the East, as it were. Gradual, but I'm describing a phenomenon. Um, Bovel will never again retain its, regain its prominence. Um, funds stop streaming in from the diaspora communities because now they have their own Talmud Echachamim to support. So what used to be everybody paid Bovel, like they used to send money to Yerushalayim, Irakodesh, now that's no longer happening. Bovel remains large and wealthy. Bovel is in this, remember, this rich uh, river valley, so there's reason for it to maintain its wealth. But um, it recedes into the background gradually. Um, it lasts all the way until the modern era where we find most Iraqi Jews, because Bavel is in the, approximately the same area as today's Iraq, most Iraqi Jews emigrate by the year 1952 to Eretz or, or or elsewhere. There are some Jews who remain there. Not, a, not an easy life to be Jewish in Iraq or Iran or in some of these, uh, some of these um, totalitarian states. Uh, but we're going to see its influence recede, and, and you're going to hear I have less to say about Bavel increasingly. It's going to pop up occasionally. We're going to hear about Rav Shmuel ben Eli in the 12th century as his part in the controversy over the Rambam. He was actually a major antagonist to the Rambam. Um, and then much later, we'll hear in Baghdad in the 19th century. Anybody know? Which guttle emerges in Baghdad in the 19th century? The Ben Ishchai, great figure. Uh, we'll hear about the Kafachayim, also from about that period. Uh, who else comes from Iraq originally? He makes Aliyah Eretz Yisrael in the 1920s, but he was born in Baghdad. His name is Rav Avadhi Yosef. So we'll hear about major figures coming from this area, but they're more the exception than the rule. Yeah. Was there one big turning point, like one thing that got that stopped? Uh, Jews from living no, I, so I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture. Yes, it wasn't really one. It was a process. And the, the story that I began today about the, the legend of the four captives is trying to fill in when did this happen exactly? The, the story attempts to um, try to give us a, a picture like how did this suddenly shift? And apparently there is no clear shift. It just gradually took place. But we see this, and I've been mentioning this idea a lot, that the diaspora is not a, there's nothing permanent about the diaspora. Communities come, community go, communities go, and even the greatest of all diasporas, because there's nothing that comes even close in comparison with the greatness of Bavel in its heyday, um, even that has a, has a life expectancy, has a time limit. Uh, Great story about this. Rabbi Wine tells this one. He said he knows of this particular story. Uh, a, a synagogue in Detroit. It's not a religious synagogue. It's a conservative place. Um, but as you, it's yeah, a typical I mean, kind of a story. You call it a synagogue. I know you're right. Well, a synagogue is a Greek word, right? So they call it a synagogue. What do you want? What do you want to call it? A temple. A temple. It's conservative temple. Is that better for you? Uh, fine. What's that? No, synagogue is from the Greek. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a it's a Detroit 
conservative temple that was built in a certain neighborhood. And then, as often happens, and we find this if you look at like the history of American Jewish community, but not just in America, the community goes to seed and becomes a, more of a low-class, crime-infested part of town, and Jews start moving away, and therefore there's less interest in the synagogue. So what are they going to do? What the temple is going to do? So they move. They're still a congregation, so they can't stay in town, and they wind up selling the temple to a Baptist church. I knew you were going to do that. Okay, which again is all, all kinds of halachic questions here, but you're not talking about halachic individuals, so let's leave all this aside. And they rebuild, the, they rebuild the, the temple elsewhere. And 25 years later, exact same temple, exact same dynamic, that new community went to sea, became crime infested, and again the Jews moved away, and again the temple felt that they had to move away, and they, they, they found a new location, and they started to build in the new location, and by coincidence, when they sold the old place, they happened to sell it to the same Baptist church. The same one. The same one. They moved also. And they bought the, new, they bought the second site of the temple. True story. Um, and as they were drafting plans for the third and new temple, the pastor of the Baptist church asked to be on the building committee. Great story. Well, I mean, it makes sense because he knows eventually. Yeah, yeah eventually. But on some level, I and mean, I think Rabbi Wine told it with a gleam in his eye when he said this, but it's a great story because it really illustrates that life in the diaspora is not, uh, we're not here all that long and we're moving along. So before you, and you see sometimes they build these stunning shuls and they celebrate the greatness of the community and call a kabod if they can build it, especially if, they can, if it's a Torah community, they can do it. But Maybe always recognize wherever you are, whether you could be in Manchester or, or, or Woodland Hills, and you know, wherever you are, it's a fleeting thing. Whatever you build there is not going to stay Lodoridoros. That's that's only Eretz Yisrael. What's it called? Maybe they built They too come and go, as we and, find. And as we find, if bubble comes and goes, then certainly. And they will Yeah. Right. Now, meanwhile, back in the European mainland continent. Um, let's take a quick re, uh, reassessment of what's been going on. Jews have been in Central Europe possibly as early as the end of the First Temple. If, uh, if you can think back that far, it's already been a couple months. We talked about Jews uh, as far as today's Spain and France. We have indications that there were Jews there on and off with lots of persecutions. Um, when the Roman Empire collapsed, so the Visigoths took over, they were primitive. Uh, we know that a lot of the Jews living on continental Europe were driven underground. We don't know much about them other than they existed. A major turning point was under King Charlemagne, who lived between 742 and 814. Uh, there it says that Charlemagne liberated the Jews. Uh, the truth is, whatever that might mean, sometimes he's celebrated as a liberal. You know, I'm going to come out and free my Jews and they're going to be free and have rights and so on. Eh, that's more of a modern recasting. Probably he was just a clever politician. He knew that uh, there were economic advantages of having Jews in, in, involved in, in commerce. It's what Napoleon did too. It's the same thing Napoleon did too. Although Napoleon at least could be described as having liberal values. I think by describing Charlemagne that way, it's more of a projection, a backwards projection in history. He was, you know, he saw the, the advantages of having the Jews. Uh, certainly in legal status, the Jews are still oppressed and proselytized. You know, become Christian, they're, 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 they're relentless, those Christians. Uh, they, they won't let us alone. Um, in the West, in the area that we think of as France, the language that they spoke long before Rashi was what's called Old Rashi French. Loaze Rashi, that you hear Rashi constantly translating the Aramaic terms or the Hebrew terms into La'az, Lashon La'az, Lashon of Odazara. Um, it was a dialect in Provence, the southern, uh, southern region of France. Uh, by the 10th century and through the 14th century, the Jewish community spoke this old French and is relatively strong in, in France. Yeah? Old French. Yeah, they used Rashi to work out. You can work things out, but by the time of Rashi, they didn't even speak it anymore. It was, it was mostly a, 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 you know, an archaic dialect. Um, but they were speaking it back in the day, back in the times of the Gaonim. Uh, we know that Jews settled around Provence. I'll mention a few of the famous cities. You know of the Riviera, uh, the, excuse me, the Riviera. Uh, there's Marseille. 
What's that? Uh, no, no, wrong, wrong part of town. We're in Provence. Worms is in the Rhineland. I'm going to get there soon. Um, no, we're talking about Riviera, Marseille, Montpellier, which literally means from the mountain. From the mountain, and indeed, we often Hebraicized the Goetia names. We find one of the early, early Rishonim is called Rav Avraham Min Hahar, from the mountain, or Montpellier. Uh, from the third, not so early, actually, from the 13th century. Lunil is the name of a city. Lunil, which of course comes from Lunar, from the city. And indeed, Jews with the last name Yarchi, Yereach, the moon, often come from Lunil, have family roots in Lunil. Uh, Paris, which is not a major place just yet, but Paris will be home for the Jews. Troye, spelled in English, Troyes, uh, which is the homeland, among others, too. Rashi, we'll hear about Troy, and, the Nor and Norbon is also a place where we find Jews. Um, there are Jews, as you correctly say, in what's called the Rhineland, which goes back and forth between the French and the Germans. It's neither this way nor that way, um, especially three neighboring communities that are often in Jewish literature referred to as Shum, garlic, uh, but Shum actually stands as an abbreviation for Spiels, Velms, uh, spires, uh, verms, and mains, um, which are pronounced in lots of different ways. There's the spires is the Goyesh pronunciation. Um, a Jewish last, last name that tells us that Jews come from spires is Shapiro or Spire. Shapiro, very common name, right? They usually can trace roots back to the Rhineland community of, of, of spires. Um, worms is otherwise called Vermeis, excellent sauce. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's for Mainz, Veromsis, we're going to learn about that too. And Mainz, we're going to hear a lot about Mainz, um, Magenza. The Jews refer to it as Magenza. Um, and eventually, these Jews in the right level also migrate east and to mainland Germany and beyond, but that's not yet happening. We know that in all these societies, and we're going to hear about them increasingly, Jews will start to play pivotal roles. They'll be central in lots of areas in politics and commerce. Um, as much as that may be good news for those individuals and their families, it usually is bad news for us as a people. The more visible Jews were, the more they stood out in the secular and the non-Jewish society, the more that generally spurred anti-Semitism. When the non-Jews see the Jews succeeding, they don't take kindly to it. So that's going to be a pattern we're going to start to see increasingly. Uh, usually, the best bet was the Jews, for Jews to succeed was to do so inconspicuously. Have your own private publishing house, but don't use your name and kind of stay beneath the radar. But the problem with that is Jews are rarely mediocre. We usually do stand out whatever we do. So uh, our, our ability to excel in so many areas would also be a bane, would also be our undoing in many of these societies. Um, I'm going to describe now a fascinating family referred to as the Colonimus family, who is considered the primary source of the Ashkenazi Messiah. Most of the Ashkenazi, the Rishonim, when they say we have, because now we see decidedly Ashkenazi Sephardim emerging in the, uh, in the world, and the Ashkenazim can trace the Masorah back to this Colonimus family, who actually go far back to the period of the Savarim. They trace their roots to Italy, to a city called Luca, Italy, as early as the 8th century. Um, they have rabbis in the family, and, they, and these, these rabbis are considered the link that links us back to the time of the Talmud. The Columbus family. I'll, I'll mention a couple of the famous ones. Rabbeinu Tam, for example, brings a tradition that the Jews go back to others, two other cities in Italy, Bari and Otranto, um, both of which were the Jews were massacred in the 10th century. But um, but he refers to certain gedolim there: Rav Amitai, Rav Shefatia, and Rav Zavadia, who um, are authors of some of the slichos. That we still say, we still say till today. You know, when we say slichos. Really, they're very fine poems that integrate a lot of Jewish ideas and history uh, and 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 Yiddishkeit in in them. So these are associated with the Jews of Italy from this period. Some say, what are, where, where are the what are the origins of the Colonimus family? Some say that Charlemagne brought Rav Colonimus, the forebear of the family, from Luca to Mainz in the year seven eighty seven. 
and that that would be the beginning of German Torah, which is the Ashkenazi. German, of course, is Ashkenazi in Hebrew. Others say it was um, later Charles the Bald brought uh, the different family members in 876. Well, there's a little bit of mystery about where it all started, but there's some kind of uh, tradition that they can trace back. Um, maybe this is what the Rabbeinu Tam is referring to as the, as the uh, origins. Um, we do know this. This Colonimus family, is referred to as a part of the Italian school, Italian-German school, had little connection with Bavel. They're part of the Messiah, but there are new offshoots of the Messiah. We know that they relied a lot on their own rigorous analysis on the text and are, were more disconnected from the traditional Nusayra that's back in Bavel. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because this rigorous analysis we can see as a precursor as anticipating the same approach that we find in Tosfos. The heavy analysis, uh, the intensive learning um, centered approach to the uh, to, to, to learning our holy texts. Um, it's a, an approach that one finds in the Ashkenazi tradition. Uh, we're going to learn about Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom, one of the great lights of Jewish history. Um, he has an interesting little piece that illustrates this idea. He writes, for example, that he personally prefers his own svara, his own sound reasoning, um, over the Bahag, remember the Bahag we talked about yesterday, this, 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 this great Bavli text, which is the Bavli tradition, he says, but, you know, he felt it was flawed in reasoning, and Ibn Gershom felt that his reasoning often was, was superior, um, and that's a legitimate approach. We've seen something similar, too, if you remember the discussion of Rabbi, Rabbi Yochan and Reish Lakish, whether you should go with tradition only or with, with you should, when Reish Lakish brings in his own Svara, remember the Machlokas that killed them. Um, svara has a place as long as it's consistent with traditional approaches. It actually can be, can be quite central and important, and this apparently has a major impact on Ashkenazi development. A couple names from this family that are famous reasonably. One is Rav Moshe ben Kolonimus, who's around the late 9th century. Um, his claim to fame is he writes piyutim, some of the earliest, oldest piyutim, including one you all know, called Kol Mekadesh Shvi, is, is from the Kolonimus family, Kol Mekadesh Shvi, and other melodies. Um, he also wrote a, uh, a piyut called Emas Norasecha, which we say in Shvi Shel Pesach, in the seventh day of Pesach. In that latter poem, he actually refers to living 900 years after the Second Temple's destruction. So that's one of the reasons why we can date it pretty clearly. Now, he has a student named Rav Yehuda Hakohen Laontin, who's a student, excuse me, who's a teacher of Rabbeinu Gershon. And here's where, again, I'm trying to connect all these great figures, show their, show their overlap between, between all of them. Um, Rav Moshe has a grandson named Rav Meshulam ben Klonimus. They skip a generation, every other generation seems to be in Klonimus. He's from the 10th century. He was a Talmud Chaver with Rabbeinu Gershom. He wrote a commentary Perkiavos. He wrote a piyut called Amitz Kayach, which we say on Yom Kippur. Um, and in a long line of great Jews, he argues with the Karaites. Rav Meshulam is one of the great um, antagonizers of the Karaites. And, and it's from, we have a source that Rav Meshulam says a Jew not only, you know, should, may have light, but he should light. Uh, and not only that, he should leave home on Leil Shabbos, contrary to the Karaite practice. It's Rav Meshulam's son. We're going to see this. I'm going to tell this story in the future, but it's Rav Meshulam's son, Rav, another Rav Kolonimus, who learns the full Nusach from Rabbeinu um, Amnon of Unisane Tokef. He learns this in a dream. If this doesn't mean anything to you yet, stay tuned. Tomorrow, tomorrow we'll tell the story. Unison Tokyo, famous story. Writes, it's a terrible story, famous story, though in Central. So, Rav Kolonimus is the one who gets it in a dream. Uh, another descendant is also named Meshulam, <coughs> is killed in the early outbreaks of the Crusaders in May, set, May 27th, um, 1096. Um, he kills himself together with many others in order not to fall into the hands of the Crusaders. And he had a 
Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. That apparently, such suicide is dying on Kiddush Hashem if it was certain to them, and that's discussed in the post scheme whether that's legitimate or not. And apparently, it seems to be in these in these times of heavy persecution. Another later descendant of the family we're going to hear about is the Rokeach, one of the later Balitosvos, who says another dynamic, and this is the last point I'm going to make about this great family. Another dynamic of this family is that they were Kabbalists. They learned Kabbalah. And you have to realize that that's a big deal because um, these are the times still... Kabbalah is not just dependent on the Zohar, which is the primary work of Kabbalah, but remember, this is still during the 11th century that the Zohar is hidden underground somewhere. So it's not... It, it, secrets may be somewhat known by certain elite scholars, but Kabbalah still... Their traditions for Kabbalah in these periods, they had secrets in the family that were transmitted from father to son, uh, they would make them their way down to some of the great Balitosos or Shmuel and then Yehuda Chosid. Uh, they would become the basis for Kabbalistic teachings and what's called Hasidic Ashkenaz. Don't confuse that with the modern day Hasidic movement. It's called Hasidic Ashkenaz, a phenomenon of later Tosfos. We'll get to this too. I'm trying to give you all these a heads up about different dynamics that are about to happen in, in the time of the Rishonim. Um, we actually know of an early Kabbalist. Uh, probably the best known early Kabbalists since the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students is, a, is, is named Rav Abun Hagadol of Mainz. He lived around the time of the 10th century, who was not only an expert in Shas, he knew all of the Talmud, but also what was described as Torah's Hasod, the secret of Torah. And I'm not going to go into these stories. I could, but I don't think they're that impactful, even though they're very interesting and maybe somebody wants to make a movie out of them. That's less interesting for me, but I'll mention this and you'll get geschmack out of it. Rav Abun has a great-grandson whose name was Rav Elchanan, then Rav Shimon Agado, who um, the legend goes that he was the Pope, uh, that there was a Jewish Pope, and that he descended by this, he just, he's a great-grandson of this great Kabbalist, uh, and it may or may not be true. And you could look it up on your own. Does the church have any kind of record on this? There are all kinds of conflicting accounts. They're not so, how do we say, in favor of the concept of a Jewish pope. Well, neither would we, right? We would not be either unless he eventually recanted and took it back. And the conflicting stories, and since it's all the stuff of legend, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, and now I'm going to talk about a great figure who's called the father of Ashkenazim. I've referred to him. His name is Rav Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom, he's referred to as Ma'or Hagola, the light of the diaspora. As the diaspora really emerges, literally the dispersed body of Jews, as Bavel is no longer so central, Rabbeinu Gershom becomes this galvanizing figure. His dates, he lives in Mainz, in the Rhineland. His dates are 960 to 1040. His students include Rav Yaakov ben Yakar, who's one of Rashi's teachers. So if you're connecting the various dots of the Messiah, you can see how many of these figures were students and, and rebbies and students and rebbies and, and all were part of a Messiah. Uh, he has students really from around the world. Rashi describes his grand teacher, you know, his rebbe's rebbe, in the following words. All Ashkenazim in the diaspora are his students. Certainly we can say this. He is the, the prestigious yeshiva of the day in Mainz. Uh, it, it will be the first yeshiva to officially eclipse the significance of Surim Tumbadisa, which is quite a task, quite a feat to have pulled off that Mainz becomes, Mainz are crying out loud, out from the way in the boondocks in the Rhineland in France, Germany, that displaces, upstages Surah and Tumbadisa. Uh, Rabbeinu Gershom had several things, several points of fame. One of them is he's one of the early, early, early um, practitioners, uh, something I've described in our Gemara Shir. He is um, one of the early correctors of the various scribal errors in Shas, in Medrash. Because after centuries of hand copying these holy texts, like a telephone or operator game, um, they're going to be mistakes. They're going to be marginal notes that get incorporated into the text, and, um, and it's since halacha is at stake, it's a terrible uh, potential tragedy, and he takes on an initial project uh, to correct them. It's a project that is, it, Rashi will continue, the Bach continues, we have the Bach corrections on the page, the Gra and many others will continue this project uh, to the point that today we have a more or less, not perfectly corrected, but reasonable text. We have to thank all of these Gedolim for doing that for us. 
Rebbeinu Gershom wrote a commentary on Torah. He wrote books on halacha. All of them were lost except for various sections that other people quote. That often is that we lost the book, but this is what the book said. The, the later commentator will bring down. They had access we don't anymore. Um, the Rosh, the great Ashkenazi post the Rosh says by the 14th century, Rabbeinu Gershom's writing, writings were so well established, so accepted among Klal Yisrael, he says, they may as well have been given at Harsina. That's how big Rabbeinu Gershom was. It, he knew his own, he knew personally from, from, uh, from suffering in the year 1012, he sat Shiva for his son and his son was still alive. Probably the story is the son converted to Catholicism. Because of that, the father sat Shiva. He sat for 14 days. Yeah, 14 days. He sat one week because of Olam Hazet and one week for the Olam Haba that his son now wouldn't have, having converted to Catholicism. It's a phenomenon we're going to see increasingly. Um, not only Jews, but sometimes great Jews, even children of great rabbis, sometimes couldn't resist the allure and the social pressures to convert. Yeah, it's not. It, you're gonna hear. We're gonna hear. I'm, I mean, I got some powerhouse, shocking stories about similar things about prominent Jews who convert, uh, and we're gonna try to make sense of it to the best of our ability. Um, I mean, the simplest answer is the you know you converted. Maybe you could have an easy life. Maybe you could escape the relentless persecution. Maybe you could have wealth and luxury. The Catholics would celebrate such such Jews as a way of encouraging others to follow. So, you know, if you're thinking only about Olam Hase, this worldly kinds of concerns, you can see why people would do it. Are you? Um, what difference does it make whether the guy says he's a Catholic now or not? Because Judaism doesn't accept conversion celebrations. You're right. Technically, they're Jewish, so what? So, so what? Pre- he, he is an apostate, he's an Ovid of Odazara, he's probably going to be in big trouble when he goes to Olam Haba, and for that reason, symbolically sitting Shiva, it's not a real Shiva, but it's a message. It's a message to the son, it's he's a message to others. Gonna, but this, really, this, is, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy. He's someone now that he could actually call the Today, it's a different subject altogether. Today, we have more Tino Shanish, people don't know. One imagines Rabbeinu Gershom's son did know better, and so his punishment is probably more serious, but that's because he's far probably going to marry a, a Gentile anyway. Probably true, wife, and his children are yeah. cut off anyway. That's certainly true, very likely. Um, the most famous of, Rabbeinu, of, many, of, of, of Rabbeinu Gershom's many accomplishments was he makes over a hundred takanos. He makes, oh, people only often only hear of the famous ones, but he makes a, over a hundred decrees around the year 1000. They're decrees that are meant to last a thousand years, but we're going to hear, we know this is true in halacha, they become, many of them become accepted and established as minhagim, and they've survived even after the thousand years is up, uh, the, the decrees still hold. And the most famous of them is Takanos Rebena Gershom. Right against polygamy, he makes a takana against polygamy. Uh, one wife. Sorry if that's a disappointment to anybody here. Um, that's certainly he's the he's the father of Ashkenazi Jewry, and that's true that predominantly is for Ashkenazi. Many of these, including this one, would be accepted laterally by many Sephardi as authoritative. Listen, the idea traces itself back to Chazal. You don't have to look further than Pirkei Avos for the notion that a person who has many wives has, 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 has a lot of sorcery in his house, in his household. Marben Nashi, Marbek Shofi. Many wives, many Yeah, a lot of, lot of problems. So it's certainly a Jewish idea to keep the polygamy down, but he makes a takana to get rid of it. He didn't see a purpose for it. In, in, in ancient days, people married multiple wives, like Rabbi Tarfun, to save the women from, from poverty. That was no longer relevant. Among, among, why was it no longer relevant? Uh, the Jews had a different style of life living in the communities, they didn't go to war per se, so you didn't have a whole generation of men wiped out suddenly in the same way. I mean, they had persecution, so you could say maybe it was relevant, but he felt it was a higher value not to only take one wife. Uh, there are a lot of ramifications. One of them immediately is that Yibum becomes not obsolete, but pretty uncommon, because Yibum happens when you're, if, if your uh, brother dies without children, you'd, you'd marry his wife, but often now you couldn't marry the wife because you were already married. So increasingly, they, people do chalitza, and yibum becomes a very uncommon reality. Uh, number two, 
this is in no order other than I'm just giving some prominent ones. There are over a hundred you could look up, but another famous one is a man cannot divorce his wife against her will. Okay, that's, that's an innovation. Uh, in other words, she has to accept the get formally. That's not in Chazal. That's the Kanas Rebbein of Gershom. If, he wanted to protect the women on some level. It also, there's a corollary. Hold the thought for just a moment. He, there's a corollary. If the wife refuses to divorce, he also gives an out for the men, anticipating your concern. What's called the very famous idea, the heter mea rabbonim. A man can potentially, if he gets a, a piece of paper signed by a by hundred legitimate rabbis, he could, take, he could override the first takana and take a second wife. Meaning if she's being stubborn and thereby, let's say, he can't fulfill the Mr. Puravu, but he's not really married to the first wife, but she won't take a get, he could get a hetermei rabbanim and get married to another woman and have another life. Yeah, it happens. We hear about this. Life is complicated. hundred rabbis signing it. Jake, did you just say before? One second, Jake. She called. Right, it's true. That's, that's, okay, that's already Talmudic. I'm just giving you the innovation. We, we, that's another discussion of the Yaguna. The plight of the Yaguna is a different, it's a difficult, different discussion. Not for now. I'm just talking about Rabbeinu Gershom's impact. Um, I have, if you're interested, I have, a, a, it's, it's somewhere up online, I have a discussion about the Yaguna as well. Uh, Rabbeinu Gershom, yet another really famous Takana, he bans reading private mail. Takanas Rabbeinu Gershom and people who are from and know this, um, they know these these uh, abbreviations, these letter. Um, ever seen this before? Bet, chet, bet, chet, uh, resh. Should I get this right? Bet, resh, me. Uh, oh, I, I skipped it. Dalen resh, gimel, becherem de Rabbeinu Gershom which people write on the outside of envelopes. And that way, I mean, you really shouldn't have to write this because people should know that it's forbidden to read private correspondence, but just in case, the Minag till today is to write these initiations, according to the Kherim, the excommunication of Rabbeinu Gershom, don't read. And by extension, don't eavesdrop to telephone conversations, don't invade other people's privacies. privacy. It's what it is probably, it's a practical application of, the, of an age-old idea that Matobu Ohalecha Yaakov, Bilam saw that the Jewish people's tents don't face one another because we respect one another's privacy. In fact, I just have had to be holding it in the Choshen Mishpat right now. These are absolutely brought down the halacha, including the fact that if your neighbor builds a window facing your, um, facing your, your residence and can thereby invade your privacy, you can actually force him to take the window down. Okay, fine, fine. But I'm saying but that these all are connected Jewish ideas that the Kanos Rabbeinu Gershom specifically pr- pr- um, bans reading pri- other people's correspondence. Number four... Um, this is a time of increasing religious coercion. Christians are forcing Jews to convert. They convert, and then they come back to the Jewish community. And they're Bali Tshuva, because they were forced, and they didn't mean it. And it's controversial. And Rabbeinu Gershom takes the attitude of compassion. He says, come back. Not only that, Jews are forbidden to remind such Bali Tshuva of what they did. Let them come back and make tshuva between themselves and the Kaddish Baruch Hu. He says, in light of the pressures of the day, <coughs> you have to give people uh, some, some you, know, you have to allow them to come back. Oh, one wonders. It's one, yeah, you, you don't know, but he was, he was compassionate. Although you could see a different reaction. Maybe another person might have had the opposite, uh, you know, backlash reaction of no, let them rot. He has a compassionate reaction. Uh, we know, for example, that there was, in this period of time, there was a cardinal, high-ranking cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. When he died, he left all of his money to Jewish causes. Meaning he really believed in Tyra all those years, and he ranked high. I mean, go figure, you contemplate the irony of that, right? All those years in the church, and uh, ultimately, when it came time for the, you know, the Yom Hadin, the time of truth, he left all of his money to Jews, that was a reality in these in these very difficult days. It's interesting. I don't know what you do about that. Obviously, he means it well, and he was, he tried to be repentant. Um, he Rabbeinu Gershom included in this takana. He said, "A Jew such who returns like this could get an aliyah in shul. They could be buried in a Jewish graveyard. They could have kaddish recited for them." 
Um, not everybody agreed. The Sephardi Jewish community, the Spanish Jewish community, for example, objected. They resented the people who gave up. And, you know, you want to come back? You know, good luck. Good luck. We're not going to be so, you know, come back, all is forgiven. Um, but they, too, will change their tune. We'll see, in, 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 even though persecution is hard in the, in the German-French area, uh, Spain will, will eventually come to know their own conversion, and they're going to soften their stance as well. Uh, Rabina Gershom authorizes what's called the Kihila system, which emerges now, the community system, uh, where you have whole, now that the Jews are all over the place, each Jewish community is, is given the semi-autonomy and authority to set up a Hebra Kiddisha, a Tzedakah society, all the various accoutrements to have Jewish life, and it costs money to do this. So one of the things that Rabbeinu Gershom authorizes the community, gives them power to assess you and your individual financial assets to know how much money they can collect from you. And it forces you to pay dues for the various organizations. If you don't do that, Gershom says, that's fine. You can, um, you'll, you'll be put in cherem. You don't pay your dues? Don't pay your dues. The community can force you because the Jews need each other and you have to pay up and they can assess your income and say, this is what's fair for you to pay because you're a Jew and we, we owe one another uh, this to, to help each other out. That's how Jews do it. Call Yisrael Aravim Zebizet. Wait, are you allowed to fight it? Like say, no, I actually can't You can take the base team if you yeah, can try to prove it, sure, but otherwise you can't just resist. And um, they had power to do this. There are many stories, for example, of Jews who would die Jews in Cherem who would die and their families had no way of burying them because the non-Jewish authorities only allowed burial to take place under Jewish auspices through the Hever Kedisha and the Hever Kedisha refused because they didn't pay the dues until the family paid all their back dues. Sometimes a huge sum of money but yeah, you'd like to bury your, 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 your dearly departed father so you'll have to uh, pay up. A um, couple more bans. He bans... Um, removing Tashmishi Kedusha from shuls. You can't take a Sidur, you can't take things for your own use without permission. Don't take a Sidur back. He bans um, buying Christian stuff like crosses or Christmas wreaths or rosemary beads uh, even though it's considered Amizraya de Bodozara, he says you can't buy it. Um, and he makes, he makes a ban against um, if there are ten men in shul, the tenth man is not allowed to leave. You'd think that we would know that one implicitly, but he, it's, it's a Takanos Rebena Gershom. Don't leave if you're the 10th man. If he does leave, Rebena Gershom says the minion can continue without him. You're allowed to continue without him. Nine men is enough if you started with 10. And finally, in my list, he bans um, changing the Nusach of the Gemara. And this is an early idea. We're going to get to this more. There's a Kedusha in the actual formulation of the Gemara. You can't change it. Um, he says the only thing you can do is write comments in the margins. But the actual text of the Gemara as they had it in the, in the 10th, 11th century when Rabbi Gershom was, uh, was, was, was the Mor HaGola, uh, that much is sacrosanct and you cannot tamper with it. So when we have Gemaras like uh, some in our class, which are off, yeah. those are problematic? As far as many Gedolim are concerned, they are. I have two more comments. I know I'm over time, but let me finish Rabbi Gershom. Um, as we said, most Ashkenazim continue to uphold these gzeros till today. Many Sephardim do as well. Um, right, they've been accepted as minhagim. Uh, remember the Pasuk, V'zarach Hashemesh, Uva Hashemesh, the sun, the sun uh, sets, the sun rises in Kohelis. We learn that Hashem never leaves the world bereft. Uh, so in 1040, Rabbeinu Gershom dies. The year is 4,800 in the Jewish calendar. In the same year, Rabban Shel Yisrael is born. Rabban Shel Yisrael, an abbreviation for Rashi in Troye. And we'll meet Rashi and other, other great early Rishonim, Bezras Hashem, tomorrow.